0: Well, I hope that you have fully recovered from the Christmas and New Year's holidays and back into the groove of everyday life. New Year's resolutions still intact and going strong. Around our house, we uh, finally got around to packing up our Christmas tree yesterday and taking down our outside lights. One of our neighbors kind of made the comment of, you know, finally getting those lights down, huh? Now I started to leave them up and say, really, we're just getting an early start on next year's Christmas, or I guess this year's Christmas, but decided that the neighborhood probably wouldn't like that if we left up all of our Christmas lights. You know, when you think about Christmas, I know that parents of young children know three words. When they buy gifts, toys or gadgets or something like that, there's always those three words that come back to haunt you. Some assembly required, Right? Because you buy this toy, you buy this gadget, and you have to put the thing together. And you're just hoping that the instruction manual works. That it's there, that it's relevant, that it works. My dad used to call that the destruction manual. And that's usually more accurate, right? The goal is to get the thing together and not have too many pieces left over. So that's what we would do. Have you ever gotten one of those though and the manual wasn't there, the instructions weren't there? You have all these pieces laid out and you're thinking, okay, now what do I do? You tear the box apart looking for the instructions and they're nowhere to be found. <clears throat> or have you ever gotten one and the uh, instruction manual was written in every language except English? Right? You think, I've got to go learn a language and then come back and put this thing together. That's going to take some time. Or maybe the instruction manual is just one generic instruction manual for all of their products. You know, this company makes a lot of toys and make a lot of products and they just put the same instructions in every single one of them. And you get that and you think, I don't have a Part A. I don't have a Gap B. I don't know what to do because the instructions are not relevant for what I am doing, for the task at hand. I say all that to say I think sometimes we feel the same way about God. We want God's message to be direct. We want God to speak to our circumstances to our challenges, to our struggles, to the decisions that we have to make. Yes, we know we have the Bible, but sometimes there's a part of our brain that says, you know, that was written a long time ago. Maybe God doesn't really know what I'm going through right now. I need him to speak to that. I need him to speak to where I am right now. You know, the people in the Old Testament had just that. Now, they didn't have a red phone, you know, like you get on the red phone and have a direct line with God. But God spoke directly to them. God would use his messengers, his spokespeople, prophets, we call them. The Bible calls them. God would use his prophets to give a direct message <clears throat> to his people. Sometimes a message about warnings. Sometimes a message about judgment. Sometimes a direct message about blessings. Counsel, whatever the case may be, God gave His direct message to His people. We are starting a sermon series this morning called Direct Message Major Teachings from the Minor Prophets. And we will be looking at the minor prophets in the Old Testament and the direct messages that God gives His spokespeople to give to His people. Speaking to their circumstances, speaking to their times, their challenges, their situations. And you say, well, that sounds great, but we live many thousands of years later. What about our circumstances? What about our times? What about our struggles? I think as we go throughout this study of the Minor Prophets, what we will see is the nature of God revealed to us. And the desires of God revealed to us. And the nature of God does not change. It is very complex. We won't figure God out. Nor should we try. But we can learn about the nature of God, the heart of God, the mind of God. And thus learn how he would have us live even today by applying biblical truth from the past. And so we're going to be studying the minor prophets. If you are confused about or need a refresher about what a prophet's job is, maybe one of the best places to look is in Exodus chapter 7. Moses was mentioned earlier. A lot of our Bible classes are studying Moses right now. And in Exodus chapter 7, God is preparing Moses to deliver the people out of Egypt. Pharaoh has the people. You remember the whole plague thing? And God says to Moses, I'm going to make you like God. It's time to role play, Moses, and you're going to be God. Now, that's some big shoes to fill, right? Moses, you're going to be God, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet, And his job is to convey your message to Pharaoh. His job is to speak for you. To convey your desire, ultimately God's desire, for Israel to be let go, to be released out of Egyptian bondage. And so the role of Aaron is the prophet, the spokesperson, the mouthpiece, the go-between. And that's exactly what prophets were. They were God's spokespeople. And so as we talk about all these different prophets and their direct messages from God, keep in mind that these aren't something that they dreamt up themselves. These aren't something that they thought, you know, we need to talk to these people about this. These are direct visions and revelations from God, direct messages from God to his people. Why are they called the minor prophets? Are they not very important? Not at all. They're simply called minor prophets because they are shorter in length. You'll notice that as you look at your Bibles. They're shorter than Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. But that does not mean that their message is any less important or any less urgent. Although they are not directly aimed at our current circumstances, again, they reveal the nature of God and God's desire even for us today. And so really there's nothing minor about them. And that's why we're calling this major teachings from the minor prophets, because what they have to say, those direct messages from God have great relevance for our lives today. It's important to point out as we think about the prophets, the minor prophets, that much much of, of their writings are written in prose, narrative, but also there's a lot written in poetry. And therefore there will be Figures of speech used, contrast, repetition, allegory, hyperbole, and other kinds of imagery. And it's our job as the preacher, it's your job as the reader and the listener to decipher what God and the prophet is trying to do. How are they trying to reinforce this message by using literary devices or figures of speech? What is this imagery really bringing out in the message? And so that'll be one of our challenges as we walk through these minor prophets. As far as context goes, the timing, remember that the minor prophets were active after the death of Solomon, during the time of the divided kingdom. Do you remember the kingdom divided into the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, which included Jerusalem? And during that time, there was a lot of tension Between those two nations, between neighboring nations, a lot of tension, a lot of conflict. Ultimately, Assyria would take down Israel, and Babylon would take down Judah. And so you had all of this tension going on, and this is the context for the minor prophets. As far as time frame goes, probably sometime between 800 and 400 B.C. It's a wide range, but probably sometime in there, most of these prophets would prophesy, and would be active in their ministry. We don't know the dates of all the minor prophets. There is some speculation. But in our series, we're trying to put them together in what at least is one proposed chronological order so that we can kind of see the flow of the messages from God to his people. When we think about prophets, and when we think about prophecy, so many times we think about fortune-telling or or future-telling or, you know, what's going to happen in the future, but really, the truth is, God used His prophets, prophets, His spokespeople, many times to address the past and the present, the way they were living, the things they were doing and not doing, and so I think it's it's um, important for us to realize that prophets don't always just say, "Here's what's going to happen in the future." So often, they address what's going on right now and what has been going on in the past. Specifically with God's people as they began to open their arms to other gods, to false gods, to gods other than Yahweh, Jehovah God. And so what God will use his prophet to do many times is warn the people or pass on judgment on the people, punishment on the people for what they're doing. And so today, as we kick off the series, we're going to look at Obadiah. So if you have a Bible, you might open it up to Obadiah. This is one of those times when you wished your Bible had the tabs, right? It's okay today to open up to the table of contents and look up Obadiah. It's right before Jonah. It's very short in my Bible. It only takes up two pages. Page 1034, just for the record. One chapter is all that's in Obadiah. It's very short. In fact, it's the shortest book in the Old Testament. Now, usually the prophets their messages are addressed specifically to God's people, whether it be Israel, whether it be Judah. They're usually aimed at God's people. But Obadiah is a little bit unique in that it is not addressed necessarily to God's people, although it certainly is important for them and useful for them, and involves them. Really, the thrust of the message is aimed at a neighboring nation, the nation of Edom. Edom, you may or may not know, grew out of and had its history in Esau. Do you remember Jacob and Esau and the tension that those brothers had? The whole birthright thing? Well, Esau, the text tells us, is the father of the Edomites. And in fact, in our text in Obadiah, Judah, God's people, the southern kingdom, is also called Jacob. And so you have this this tension, this conflict between Esau, the Edomites, Edom, and Jacob, or Judah, God's people. And this direct message is... Involving both of those parties, but is directly aimed and targeted at Edom. Notice what it says in verse 10 of Obadiah. <clears throat> because of the violence against your brother, there's that brotherly tension, because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame, you will be destroyed forever. And so it's clear to see that this prophetic message, this direct message, is a message of warning of destruction, of judgment. Specifically on Edom. Because of the violence that you have carried out against your brother Jacob, here's what's going to happen to you, God says. Those are strong words. Why such harsh words? Why such strong judgment on these people? I think it's because they shared an ancestry with Judah, with God's people. They shared proximity And yet they stood by, the Bible says, and watched as strangers invaded God's people and they did nothing. There's at least 12 acts of oppression and violence enacted against Judah by Edom. Verse 11 says they stood aloof. Some versions say they stood at a distance. And so while others came in and invaded God's people, Edom stood by looking the other way. What can we do? But they didn't just stand by. Notice in verse 12, they rejoiced at their destruction. They were pleased when strangers came in to invade Judah. And not only that, verse 13, they marched into their gates and they seized their wealth. They took advantage of the opportunity. They not only stood aloof and stood at a distance, they not only rejoiced when other people came and attacked God's people, but they benefited from it. They said, hey, this is an opportunity. Let's go in there and see what we can find. In verse 14, they cut down their fugitives and handed over their survivors. This violence against God's people will not be stood for by God. It's interesting that Obadiah is so short and yet it reveals so much, not only about God, but about mankind. These acts of violence are rooted in something deeper, just like our acts of violence. Just like when we do things that dishonor God, it's always rooted in something deeper. And the text tells us what's going on here. The core problem, the heart of the problem. Look at verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? It's interesting that these people, this nation of Edom, lived in the cleft of the rock. If you look at this picture on the screen, it may look familiar to you if you've seen some of the Indiana Jones movies, right? This is typical of Edom. They would literally cut their homes, their cities, into the cleft of the rocks. And what this passage says is, you live up high. You look down on others. You literally live at the heights But you figuratively live there as well. You have this attitude of arrogance and pride and smugness. And so the warning from God is, in verse 12, you should not look down on my people. You should not boast because of their trouble. And so you have the heart of these people filled with arrogance and pride and smugness. And they're looking down on God's people as God's people are suffering. As God's people are being invaded by neighboring nations. And Edom stands there apathetic. And they come in and they get what they want. And they pillage God's people because of their arrogance. You see, there is no place for arrogance. There is no place for pride in the kingdom of God. That was true back then. That was certainly true in Jesus' day. Remember when he got on to the Pharisees? Why did he condemn the Pharisees so strongly? Because of their arrogance and pride We have this thing all figured out You want to know what a real believer A a real follower looks like Just look at us We have a direct connection with God God is so pleased with us And they were so concerned about outward appearances And their hearts were so far from God It was their arrogance and their pride That Jesus condemned It was true in the Old Testament It was true in Jesus' day And it is certainly true today There is no room for arrogance, no room for pride in the kingdom of God. Humility should permeate every aspect of our lives, our relationships, our dealings with other people, our attitudes, our hearts, our congregations, every aspect of life. We are called to be humble, to avoid arrogance. That's why the proverb writer wrote in Proverbs 16, verse 18, that pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. The warning is clear. If you want to be arrogant, if you want to be prideful and boastful, then get ready. Because you will be taken down a few notches. Right before destruction is pride. That was the case with Edom. We will see that. We will see the destruction that takes place for these people. These people that stood by and allowed God's people to be destroyed. God has strong words for them. Obadiah, verse 2. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. Don't you like what what God's doing there? He says, you think you're so high and mighty? You think you're so big and and strong? I will make you small. I will bring you down. Verse 4. Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars... From there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Verse 15 and 16. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. Whenever you see that phrase, the day of the Lord, and we'll see it quite often throughout our study in the Minor Prophets, just know that it means some kind of judgment. The day of the Lord may mean judgment in this life. The destruction of Jerusalem. The destruction of a neighboring nation. Judgment on God's people. Judgment on someone else in this life. Or it may mean... Judgment in the next life. But the day of the Lord clearly means judgment. And so the warning is, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you, have been, as you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, in other words, you desecrated Mount Zion, just as you partied in Jerusalem at the temple with your secular and worldly attitudes and hearts, Know this, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. God says, Destruction is coming. You messed with my people. Now get ready. But that's not where the story ends. It's not just a direct message of destruction for this nation of Edom. Notice it's also a message of deliverance for God's people. Verse 17. But, he says, on Mount Zion, there will be deliverance. It will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. You see, God's people will be restored. All those wrongs will be made right. And God will deliver his people. Verse 21, deliverance will go up on Mount Zion. Do you see the contrast there? Edom, I will bring you down. I will make you small. I will bring you down from your lofty heights, from your arrogance. I will humble you. But my people will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. That's the final words of that prophetic message. That's the final statement in the book of Obadiah. The kingdom will be the Lord's. If there was ever a question, there was ever a doubt. Who is in control? We're seeing all these people take advantage of God's people. Is God still in control? Why is he allowing this? Make no mistake. God is in control. God is always in control. And that has implications for our lives. Because how many times have we felt the injustice of this life? How many times have we looked around at our circumstances and the difficulties that we are facing, the challenges that we have, the injustice that we are experiencing? We're watching people who are worldly and secular and they're benefiting and they're being blessed seemingly. Good things are happening to them. We're trying to follow God and we're struggling. Where's the justice in that? It's important for us to remember that God is still in control. That God's will is going to be done that he is sovereign, that he is all-knowing, and that in this life or the next, all those wrongs will be made right. And there will be divine justice carried out. That's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Do not take revenge. Do not take matters into your own hands, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And it's so good for us to remember. It's so good for us to be reminded that we aren't the ones in charge. That it's not our job to seek revenge. That when someone takes advantage of us, it's not our job to look out for ourselves, number one. That when people who are living by the standards of the world are benefiting, it's not our job to try to make that right. Right? Revenge is not our business, it's God's. Judging others is not my duty, that's God's duty. And justice for me is not my life's highest calling. It will come in the next life. My job is simply to trust God. To remember that He is in control, not me. It's so easy to make the mistake of thinking we're in control It's so easy to make the mistake of thinking that we have to step in. God, I know you're busy. I know you got a lot on your plate right now. So let me just take care of this one. You know, let me sit in the driver's seat. I'll give it back to you. But right now I need to be in control because this person hurt me because this injustice is going on in my life, because this isn't fair and I've got to make it right. And God simply says, trust me. I'm in control. You know, when we do that, when we try to seize control from God, really, we are extending a lack of faith in God. We are saying, God, I don't trust you. I don't believe that you will take care of this adequately, that you will handle this situation in a way that will benefit me. We're really expressing a lack of faith in God. And if you think about it, we are becoming just like the people who are condemned in our text. We are becoming the arrogant, the prideful. We are becoming the ones who live in the cleft of the rock up on high, looking down on others. It's my job to take control of this. God, it's my job, it's my duty to pass judgment on these people. It's my job to seek justice for myself. And we begin to look down on others and have a spirit and a heart of arrogance and pride and i would say that if we do that we better get ready we better brace ourselves because the same thing that happened to them may happen to us do you remember what james wrote in james chapter 4 verse 6 he gives us more grace that's why scripture says god opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble God shows favor to the humble so what is the direct message what is the prophet Obadiah saying to his people what is he saying to us today I think he's saying God is in control trust God remain humble know that all the wrongs in this world may not be made right in this lifetime And that's a tough thing to deal with. That's a tough truth to accept. Because we desire justice and fairness. And the direct message is, trust God. God will work all things out. God will bring rightness to all that is wrong. Our job is to trust Him. To remain humble. As we think about what it means to remain humble... It begins by humbling ourselves before the Lord, humbling ourselves in such a way that we give our very lives to him. We say, God, I recognize that you're in control anyway. I want to surrender my life to you. No longer do I dictate what I do and where I go and how I live. That is your job. I surrender that to you. If you're still trying to live in control of your own life, it is time to give it up. It is time to surrender your life. To humble yourself before the Lord. To confess your faith in Jesus Christ. To be baptized into Christ. To put him on. To give him control. The control he already has. To surrender your life to him. I hope that you'll do that today. Maybe you did that a long time ago. But as you take inventory of your life, the truth is you're not giving over every aspect of your life to him. You're still seizing control on some parts of your life, maybe certain relationships, maybe your finances, maybe some other aspect of your life. You're giving God the lip service, but you're not fully surrendering to him. That comes from a lack of faith. That comes from saying, God, I want to take control of this part of my life. I want to make sure things go well in this aspect of my life. It's time to surrender it all. Give it to Him. If we can help you do that, if we can pray for you, support you, hold you accountable, encourage you, we would be happy to do that. We would be happy for you to do that for all of us. If you want to be baptized today, confess your faith in Jesus Christ. Surrender your life to Him, we can do that as well. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.